The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Jennifer Fearing of Fearless Advocacy. Hello. Hello, and you are into a number of causes, and I wanted to ask you about a couple of things about nonprofits. I know you're knowledgeable about that, and one issue that keeps coming up here is what is the impact of COVID-19 on just about everybody, and there is an impact on nonprofits in sort of a distinctive way. What, what's your thought of that? What are those impacts? Oh my, well, the, the impact is, I mean, again, I, I think you said it right, the impact, it, it, there isn't anyone, any person or any organization or sector that's going through this pandemic unscathed. So I'm you know, well aware um, that the, the plight of nonprofits is sort of sh- a shared pain that's across the whole the whole landscape of people, places, and things. Um, but yeah, I've, I've worked for the California Association of Nonprofits, Cal Nonprofits, for about six years, and we're about 10,000 member organizations as a policy alliance, and we're sort of the chamber of commerce, or the chamber of non-commerce, as I jokingly call it, um, for the nonprofits. And as a result, we're, you know, kind of the hub of engagement for nonprofits, particularly as they, you know, seek to engage the state um, and, and engage in the policy process. And through that, I, I, we've had a ring, I've had a real bird's eye view to the pain and suffering that nonprofits of every size um, uh, has experienced through this pandemic. And frankly, a, a diversity kind of, of, of pain, because on the one hand, you have everything from relatively um, um, high impact nonprofits who are being called on, you know, to step up like never before because the demand for their services. So whether that's the Meals on Wheels of California, you know, those programs in every community that are seeing their demand skyrocket as, you know, seniors were the first and they'll be the last, um, you know, to be released from um, kind of home shelter in place needing, needing far more people needing, you know, food assistance than ever before, um, you know, delivered to them. Um, and the food banks and other nonprofits that really are like direct services providers, like trying to figure out how to be all things to so many more people and scale up super quickly and dramatically. Um, and all the way to the other end of the spectrum, we've got museums, historical institutions, other nonprofits not deemed essential or whose work is not, you know, responsive to, um, to you know, direct needs associated with the pandemic, who've been shuttered completely since mid-March and have really uh, struggled to do any fundraising. Nonprofits across the board are struggling. That You know, there have been no galas, no golf tournaments, no raffles, um, none of the ways that nonprofits traditionally earn the resources to keep their lights on and their people paid and more most importantly their programs you know kind of offered to communities so it has been um like i said diverse and across the board and there's a national survey out a couple weeks ago that estimates that one in four nonprofits nationally are going to close at some point during this pandemic and never never to reopen and i think that squares a lot with what we're seeing here in California, and they're just they're just kind of hanging on. Well, one thing uh, one thing I've heard is that as bad as it is this year, 
in some ways next year may be worse because people that have have been braving the the storm so far with you know the stock market being solid and all that they've been able to continue their their donations and also a lot of the nonprofits have been living off of donations they got last year but next year the the coffers are going to be empty can you do you have any insight into that I mean that that tracks a bit with what I've seen. Yes, I mean nonprofits, particularly solvent, you know, ones that were operating, you know, sort of responsibly, have some resources in the bank. And I, I will say, I think a number of them, I mean, many of them, have laid, you know, shrunk their staffs already. So in terms of, I think they're all feeling the impact in some significant way already. But you're right in terms of making the decisions, hard decisions about whether they can even continue next year looks really scary. Um, um, And I think it's a domino effect, right, of a lot of these other things. If the eviction crisis is comes to fruition in the way that folks are really concerned about, I mean, it's going to just be a tidal wave of impact um, that will affect, again, nonprofits are kind of on both sides of that equation. They're going to be deeply needed because they are just the kind of community-based organizations that come to the rescue and try to help support local governments and others who try to assist with um, people who become unhoused for one reason or another. And, uh, you know, the legal aid, the legal aids of the world are nonprofits who will try to represent those tenants in court, et cetera. The demands on them will be significant. And, um, the question is just where the resources, you know, will come from to support them on up to like, again, the museum, the Monterey Bay Aquarium, there's a very big story in the LA Times this last week. I don't know if you guys saw it, looking at what like an institution like the Monterey Bay Aquarium is going through. I mean, they have animals to care for, um, but because they are have been deemed an indoor museum, they have not been open since mid-March and you know, ticket revenue and tourism is how they pay for the education and the cultural experiences and the animal care there. So they are feeling extremely desperate as they wind, you know, spend down whatever money they had in the bank and look at, you know, endless months of no, no new ticket revenue. Jennifer, is there any safety net for nonprofits as far as funding goes, state or federal funding? I don't associate them with that, but is it out there? We just don't know about it? Well, we have, you know, Cal Nonprofits has really advanced both federally aligned with other, you know, um, national kind of uh, associations for nonprofits, the Nonprofit Council, sorry, the Council of Nonprofits, um, have, you know, advocated for any type of relief that is aimed at businesses or small businesses that they explicitly make nonprofits eligible as well. We, we were eligible for PPP loans, but like, uh, but like the business sector, you know, that topped out there, you know, organizations of a certain employment size, like the largest nonprofits weren't eligible for that. But a lot of nonprofits and a lot of nonprofits here in California were able, ultimately, that first round of PPP was terrible. And it was particularly bad for nonprofits because the banks that issued the first round of PPP loans only were willing to do loans to existing customers who had credit lines. And a lot of nonprofits don't operate with credit lines. And so we were really left out of that first round. But the second time through when they modified some of the some of the terms, we were a lot more nonprofits were able to get were able to get PPP loans. But just like similar to you know, the small businesses who got that, those funds are running out. We've been strong advocates for the HEROES Act. Um, or whatever version uh, Congress sees fit to pass and the president will sign that sends significant you know, relief 
um, to local governments and to state governments because I mean, again, it's kind of the domino effect. We both need direct aid, but we also need services to continue to be able to be provided uh, by government because people turn to us when government isn't there for them. Uh, when you advocate on behalf of a nonprofit, you, I mean, traditionally you, you do a lot of one-on-one and meet people and there's a, a lot of getting together, you know, face-to-face, but now a lot of that is not, it's not possible just because of the lockdowns and people, you know, social distancing and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Is this putting you at a disadvantage as far as you representing your, the people you represent in Sacramento? They still look to you in the same way for representation, but it seems like it just got a lot harder. Yeah, I'm not so sure I was disadvantaged relative to other advocates. I mean, I don't think the fact that my clients are nonprofits made advocating in the time of COVID any more difficult per se. Um, you know, we did get um, creative quickly, though. And if you, for example, if you were to check out the Cal Nonprofits website, you would see pretty front and center. We held 18 town hall meetings with, I think, ultimately, there were close to 30 legislators who were involved. These were regional town halls that connected um, Cal nonprofits, legislators, federal, there were members of Congress who participated, um, and nonprofits in those districts that, you know, we easily had 100 to 200 people, um, nonprofit leaders on each one of those. We held several statewide town halls with folks like Senator Mitchell, who's the budget chair and comes from the nonprofit world. Um, so we, we worked to really like expose and engage legislators, you know, using Zoom and other other tools. Um, we have proceeded with our nonprofit of the year effort, and I was even working on that today. 107 members of the legislature so far have chosen a nonprofit of the year this year, so we won't have a big old party on, you know, luncheon on the lawn like we normally do. But we're not missing the opportunity. Maybe you can get highlight. Senator Grove to apply for a permit on that. Yeah. She might be able to pull some strings and get yeah. you a permit. Uh, or you could do a top 100 nonprofits, and we could, you know, collaborate here. So yeah. <laughs> that was the a joke. Part of that sounds fine. The first part of that hard pass. Um, But I I would say, uh, you know, I would say it's uh, those of us with a good external game, like I've never been so glad I spent the last 10 years building up my Twitter prowess and following. Um, I do think um, like not being able to be in the Capitol and not being able to have as much um, direct access, like I've I've been grateful (laughs) for being able to communicate effectively (laughs) through the channels that were relatively unique to me in the past. Um, but I, I do, I think with notable exceptions, some of which I've publicly complained about, I have felt that, you know, advocates trying to, you know, influence the public policy process have sort of been relatively equally disadvantaged during this time. I mean, it's been hard for sure. Um, but I think hard for everybody. Well, and speaking of Twitter, you actually, to go in the other direction with the good news, uh, you actually recently posted on Twitter, 10 things that were good news about the legislative session, uh, which was sort of a a welcome respite from the (laughs) litany of bad news we've had seemingly over the entirety of 2020. So do you want to talk about that at all? I will, and I'll be, I want to be clear, not all of those were legislative, actually. <laughs> so that's part of, potentially part. Yes, I felt like it was important. I kind of actually just posted that this morning, but it's a, I was doing a report. I have about half a dozen clients who work on, you know, animal protection or whether they're animal shelters or wildlife protection organizations. And we've been really busy this year on, you know, influencing certain things that were specifically COVID related, like 
pushing the veterinary medical board um, to expand access to veterinary telemedicine to allow kind of safer, um, not, you know, not require people to have to go to the vet for everything they would have to during normal times and reduce kind of contacts. Um, a new uh, the governor just recently appointed a shelter veterinarian to the veterinary medical board. Uh, we have been work I've been working for a while with Department of Fish and Wildlife to stand up this grant program that was established through a bill we passed with Marie Waldron a few years ago that added one of those voluntary contribution funds to the tax form. And there's about six hundred thousand dollars that's built up in that account, but they hadn't yet um, gotten a grant program up and. We now expect by the end of November to have close to $600,000 go out the door to those 45 nonprofits, which is a real good news story because those organizations really need it and are leaned on pretty heavily by communities. And interestingly, wildlife rehabbers are busier than ever because everyone working from home means they're finding every little songbird that falls out of a nest because they're home to witness it. Um, So those were some of the good news. There's a couple bills that I worked really hard on that are in fact on the governor's desk. They made it through the crazy gauntlet this year. Um, a bill AB 2152 by assembly member Gloria uh, closes a loophole in a law we passed a few years ago relating to the retail sales of um, puppies, kittens, and bunnies. There were some real bad actors down in the San Diego area who had found a way to basically set up sham rescue groups and continue to pass puppy mill puppies through and sell them in stores and it's been quite a hassle to deal with so there's a bill on the governor's desk that closes that loophole and ab 1788 by assembly member richard bloom which is a five-year effort finally come to fruition to curb the use of what are called second generation anticoagulant rodenticides just rolled off the tongue, um, but these sort of super toxic poisons that basically turn up in any necropsy of wild animals, including mountain lions, who were recently advanced to candidate status under the Endangered Species Act here in California. It's a real problem. So there's a bill on the governor's desk that would limit the use of those rodenticides. So that's about half of the things I mentioned, I think, in my tweet storm this morning about good news. In common language, that that, uh, rodenticides would be rat poison? Correct, rat poisons. There are four different um, chemicals um, that are, they're called, they're super toxic in that they don't, the rats ingest the poison, but then the rats themselves are poisonous. So when a scavenger or another animal feeds on that rat, they die too. There's enough poison in that rat to either kill the much larger animal or to so compromise, you know, make them sick enough to compromise their immune system that they then die of mange or, or some other some other thing they would otherwise be able to fight off. You think there's any been, been any change in the way um, people relate to their pets because of the pandemic? It just seems like we have our pets around us more. We're home more. Um, our pets are home. Are we closer to them now? Well, my dog is the MVP of the pandemic. Um, my cat is like the LVP. He's really not enjoying us being home. I'm calling him the least valuable player of our of our household. But 100%, I think that's been the experience. And I'll tell you what, we're seeing it at the shelters. Like, try to get a dog right now. Good luck. Like, the shelters, you know, folks are being able to sort out, you know, problems with their dogs that they might otherwise need to you know, feel the need to um, rehome them. They're taking the time or they have the ability to work with them. Um, And people who want dogs because they're finally home and and feel like they can make that commitment, 
They are in very short supply. I am hot on the track of trying to find a, you know, medium-sized female dog, <laughs> no particular breed, and I'm, I'm as connected as I am. I'm still having a hard time finding one for a friend. So I, I definitely think things have changed. I'm a little nervous, and so is the sheltering community that both with the evictions or the economic downturn or people going back to work, you know, that we're going to face um, a you know pendulum swing on that. But for the time being, it, it really is a time of um, scarcity in the um, uh, excess animals <laughs> category. And a lot of people are counting on their animals for comfort right now. You know, I, I um, when you talk to people about where they got their pet or pets, usually it's an animal shelter of some sort. That's you know, people I talk to tell me that, but I'm wondering, there must be a retail market out there. It used to be you went to a pet store and bought a puppy. I don't know if people still do that, but is there a, aside from the animal shelters, if you want pets, are there sellers out there, particular breeds, for example, or, you know, are they still out there? Are they in my neighborhood somewhere? Um, well, CRE, the part I just mentioned about the bill on the governor's desk, you definitely are not buying them at a pet store. <laughs> um, when you see them at a pet store, and frankly, in Northern California, they haven't been selling puppies in pet stores for two decades. That's just like not really a thing. When you see them at a Petco or another store, that's typically a rescue group or an animal shelter group who's displaying, you know, a rescue group, sorry, that's displaying, you know, animals that are up for adoption. Um, that kind of puppy in the window thing is a fairly bygone era, at least up here. Like I said, there's there have been a handful of, of stores in LA, Orange County, and San Diego that most of which were shuttered by the, like those sales were shuttered by the bill we did a few years ago, a handful of which kind of were skirting around it. But, you know, I, I'm a big advocate of the, you know, of used dogs, um, secondhand dogs. I, I <laughs> believe in that. I've never heard them described I, like that people before. People patient. Um, and waiting for the right, you know, waiting for the right dog to come along is going to be what I advocate for. So, and I really, really warn people against buying a dog online, um, particularly buying a puppy online, because there's a lot of deceit in that market. And the pictures of like happy, you know, you know, dog farm where there's three dogs and everything's wonderful is often not very often not the case. A responsible breeder is going to want you to come visit their property. You know, you're going to see where the mama dog lives and um, no one should buy a dog who from anyone who won't let you see and meet the parents. That's just the rule of thumb. You know, you you mentioned uh, at one point the plastics bill. Can you talk about that and what happened and what didn't happen this year? Uh, yes. Um, so, you know, that that bill, both, well, they're identical bills. Assemblymember Gonzalez has AB 1080 that, uh, and Senator Allen had SB 54 and we tried very, very hard and dang near got those up and out on, at the end of session last year, but, um, come midnight, um, neither of them actually got taken up. And after a lot of debriefing, in the fall and getting a little distance on it, we sort of arrived at the sense that number one, there was some interplay with some other bills, notably SB one, that um, kind of kind of interfered, I think, with our ability to move the plastics bills. But also, we always called them the plastics bills, but actually those bills, they were what was called material neutral. They were actually a very comprehensive effort to kind of try to rethink how we deal with waste writ large. So it included glass and paper and metals. And that was just uh, the feedback we got from members um, was that was just too much. It was too heavy of a lift. And while we do need to solve that whole problem, it was just 
the the momentum and the kind of interest was there to deal with single-use plastics packaging and like foodware items but um not quite ready to tackle the whole dang thing so that's what this year all throughout the covid a lot of crisis a bunch of stakeholders were meeting and talking with the authors and talking with policy staff and effectively what happened was a couple weeks before the end of session we were able to release amendments that scaled the bill the bills, excuse me, way back to just focus on single-use plastics, packaging, and foodware, and to kick out the dates and to add sort of more legislative check-ins. So the, the amendments were really tailored to address issues that members, particularly of the Assembly, had told us were kind of sticking points for them in voting for the bills prior. So you know, you saw what we saw. We, we mounted a pretty strong campaign. Local governments were all in. This is a serious problem uh, uh, for local governments dealing with the recycling and waste crisis um, and environmental organizations and a variety of businesses were sort of all in. And on Saturday, before the end of, at the end of session, the Senate passed the bill with 23 votes, good strong vote. Um, and then there was this question about when Ms. Wicks was gonna be there. We knew we were really gonna hover right around the 41 mark on the assembly side. The, the plastics industry and really even the oil industry, if you realize that plastics are kind of the future market for oil, I mean, the current and future, I should say, um, I, we were really up against a lot of political might. Um, so that because Ms. Wicks was only going to be present on Monday, we had, you know, we were facing down having to take the bill up on the last day of session, which is always really hard. So anyway, it got 37 votes on the first call. That is a strong, solid showing. And we were we felt very confident that they were going to get to 41. And that was a long few hours. And it never happened. The call never got lifted until 11.58. Oh, wow. Um, oh, shoot. And so, yeah, so the bills died. And um, not happy. And I can tell you there's several journalists. I spent a fair amount of time on the phone last week. There are several journalists and maybe an Ed Board or two that plan to, I think, talk through what their own reporting is telling them um, happened. But I, so I guess we'll wait and see. <laughs> but in the meantime, this year, you know, we qualified a ballot measure that the actual signatures have been submitted. It hasn't been. The governor did an executive order that kicks off until March when county boards of, you know, county registrars have to certify, you know, validate those signatures. But we feel confident but we've got a ballot measure poised for the November 2022 ballot, which does most of what these bills do, plus um, creates a penny per plastic item tax that would go to fund all of the new kind of recycling infrastructure we'd need, you know, environmental mitigation and coastal cleanup of plastics, pollution, et cetera. So I am looking forward to a, to a ballot measure in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Jennifer, you are actually packing up and driving across country to go do some electoral work back in Pennsylvania. Do you want to talk about what what you've got going on there? Yeah, yeah. Well, my husband and I have been planning this for a couple of years. And it's, I mean, we're not leaving for 10 days, so I guess COVID could still mess it up. But it's be the first thing COVID hasn't messed up. Um, but yes, we've been planning for a couple years. My husband grew up in a very small uh, town in a rural county in um, eastern Pennsylvania that is actually a swing county that voted for Obama and Obama and then Trump for president. And we saw that firsthand in October 2016 when we went for a visit. 
we got a really sick sense that Trump was going to win from what we saw in that county. So we've been planning for a while. His folks live on five acres in the house my husband grew up in. We have a little tiny house on the property. We've never spent more than a weekend at a time. And so we bought a van in February and, um, yeah, we're leaving next week. We're going to drive east. Um, we've now proven to ourselves we're successfully working remotely, so it shouldn't really matter if we're on East Coast time or West Coast time. But we are going to we're all in with the Northampton County Democrats and um, I'm signing up to do voter protection work with the Biden campaign and I'm going to do whatever GOTV looks like in an era of COVID. I'm not really sure. I doubt it's a lot of in-person work, but uh, however I can be helpful, um, it's really, really important to both of us um, to be somewhere where we can make a like a difference on what we feel like are the existential threats you know, facing the country. And that's really not stuff going on in California, but it's really about who's president and who's in Congress. They had a female Democrat take the seat in 2018, so we also really want to you know, make sure she holds on to it. Wow, interesting, interesting. Cool. Well, fair enough. Tim, did you have anything else? No, I think, okay. I think we're good. We've bent her ear enough. Jennifer Fearing, thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks, you guys. Thanks so much. I appreciate the time to connect with you. Miss you. <laughs> Don't see you anymore. Tim, thank you very much. And this is John Howard saying we'll see you uh, next time around. Thanks.